The Apostle Paul in his letters, of course, is providing us with a very brief summary of the great themes of his prayer life. I'm sure we can be confident that Paul spent many hours on his knees praying through these things. But he provides us with these really helpful insights as to those things that he thinks are of chief importance for Christian believers and for Christian churches. And he opens up to the Philippian church and gives them and us a glimpse into the things that have been on his mind and upon his heart as he prays for these believers, that their love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that they might approve the things that are excellent, be sincere and without offence at the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What prompts you to pray for other Christians? And what kind of issues do you pray about? I suspect that for many of you, often your prayers are prompted by physical events and circumstances that you hear people are in. The people who are the focus of your prayers are those who have some current issue in their life. It might be illness, could be bereavement, could be the need for employment, could be family problems, could be any number of things. But you become aware of an issue and so you pray. Now, that's very good. But presumably, those who don't have issues don't get prayed for. Is that how it works? Because that's the danger when all you pray about is people with issues. Because the people who apparently don't have an issue don't get prayed for. Does that describe your prayer life? Might be worth having a think about that. How do you pray for other Christians? How do you pray for all the members of this church? How do you pray for other churches? We've heard of one this morning. Now one of the very noticeable things about the way Paul prays is that much of his prayer life seems to be concerned with all believers without discrimination. Because most of his prayers are not focused upon particular physical circumstances of individual Christians. Paul's prayers are focused upon spiritual needs, which are common to us all. And those seem to be the things that take up most of Paul's prayer life. His main concern is not for physical life, but spiritual life. His main concern is not people's physical welfare, but their spiritual welfare. Not that he has no concern for the physical, but his chief concern is for the spiritual. And it's a lesson that we do well to learn. And I believe it's an example we do well to copy. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we stop 
praying for individuals who are going through specific trials. Of course we should pray. They need our prayers. Paul most certainly did that. So should we. We have some examples of it. For example, in Acts chapter 12, the whole church gathered to pray for Peter. Why? Because he was in prison. And he needed the prayers of God's people for those particular circumstances he was in. So yes, of course it's right to pray for believers because of certain circumstances or situations they find themselves in. But the Apostle Paul shows us something very different. He shows us that there ought to be a much more general and regular spirit of prayer which is concerned for the spiritual welfare of all. And I think actually in many believers, this is often lacking. Too many Christians have not learned to pray as fully as they can and should. So let's have a look at these verses in Philippians 1 and and see what it is as as we listen to the words of the apostle. What is it that we can learn from him about prayer? Well, first of all, he prays that they should be abounding in godly love. It is literally to superabound, abound to the utmost. He prays for a vital aspect of their Christian character, which will greatly affect how they live towards one another, that they might love more and more. To never be satisfied with where you are now. Now we've seen how love for one another is one of the chief things for which Paul gives thanks. In six of his letters, he specifically thanks God that he can see that there is love for Christ's people in those churches. And here he prays that that love might grow and grow. So for Paul, you see, it's wonderful that he can see that it's there and give thanks for it, but it's not enough to stop there. Now he prays that it will grow and that it will continue and that it will develop. Jesus, after all, he said that one of the most effective forms of Christian testimony that a local church has is the outworking of love amongst the members of that church. Because of your love for one another, people will know you're my disciples. But there's a framework and a context for this love. This love is not an emotional and moral free-for-all like it is in the world. This love is to exist and operate within a framework of righteousness and holiness. God is a God of love. But the Bible also tells us of things which God hates. So in verse 5 of Psalm 5, we're told there that God hates all workers of iniquity. And we see there that it's not just the iniquity that God hates. His hatred is directed towards iniquitous people. In verse 16 of Proverbs 6, you'll find listed there seven things which God says he hates. And turn to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 15. And there, of course, you're reading a letter from Christ to a Christian church. And we find there that God hates false doctrine and those who teach it. Now, 
those things which God loves and those things which God does not love, because God does not love everything, are those things arbitrary? Do those things change from day to day? Does God pick and choose those things at random or just on a whim? Is it down to how he happens to feel today? Well, of course not. Those things that God loves and those things that God does not love, they are according to his perfect knowledge and discernment because of his nature. Now, if we therefore are to do each other good spiritually, we need to love one another with a similar knowledge and discernment. We need to love one another knowing what is good and knowing what is not good. We need to grow, therefore, in the knowledge of God. We need that for our own personal walk, but we need that for the love that we express to one another and for how we pray for one another. And so we need to grow in the knowledge of his word, the Bible. For there it is that he makes known to us those aspects of his will that he's permitted us to know. And there it is that he displays for us that which is good and that which is not good. So we must love one another and we must seek to abound in love, but it must be a love which is accompanied by and which is directed by spiritual knowledge and discernment. That's how Paul prays. For example, let's take a very current issue facing Christian churches. How do Christians and churches respond to people in our communities living in openly homosexual and transgender lifestyles? How do Christian churches respond to the promotion of gay marriage? There's a live issue. How do we respond? Well, you will come across some evangelical churches who just support all of those things in full, without question. And they will tell you that they do so on the basis of love. We are to love. We are not to hate. We are not to despise. We are not to judge. After all, they say, God is love. But can you not see that they have a very unbiblical view of God's love? God does not love everything. God does not love everyone the same. It might come as a shock to some of you, but it's the truth of the Bible. God does not love everyone the same. God does not love everyone in the same way. Because God's love operates within his own framework of righteousness and holiness. And those things which are outside of that and those things which are against that... They are things which God hates. They are things which actually make God hot with anger. And of course, therein is the very context of the gospel. That is why the gospel is saving good news. Because in Christ, God's anger is turned away from you, the sinner. And of course, those who come to Christ in repentance by faith cannot continue to live in sin 
You cannot say that you love God and then continue however you like. Because you must place your life under God's righteous and sovereign rule. So for churches to remain biblical and to stay in line with God's will, they must exercise love, yes. But that love must be exercised with knowledge and discernment like God does, so that that love remains within God's framework of righteousness and holiness in every, in every way. Now, this does not mean that we become nasty towards people. It doesn't mean that we become vindictive with people. We are to act with compassion and with grace. But at the same time, we cannot and we must not abandon righteousness and holiness. They have to be upheld. You see, one of the effects of sin in, the, in, the sin in a sinful world, in a godless world, one of the effects of sin is that love operates without any boundaries or limits. Love can do whatever it wants to do in a world without God. Love in the world has no fixed moral framework. And so all manner of things are done in the name of love. And love is used as a justification for all kinds of lifestyles and behaviours. And don't you ever dare to judge or criticise. But God's love does not operate in that way. God's love does not permit a moral free-for-all. And neither can yours if you're a Christian. Neither can ours corporately if we're a Christian church. This is why Paul prays as he does in verse 9. This is why he prays for the need for knowledge and discernment when related to the expression of love. It has to be a godly love. It has to be a God-honoring love. It has to be a Christ-like love. And so this in part also explains, for example, why the exercise of discipline is part of church life. It, it explains why in the pastoral epistles, Paul makes it clear that part of the role of preaching is correction and rebuke. Why? Because love must abound, but abound according to knowledge and discernment and in righteousness and in holiness. But if love crosses the line, it has to be corrected and brought back. You see, Christian love must encourage and include certain types of behaviour. But Christian love must also discourage and exclude other types of behaviour. Because those behaviours are ungodly. And they're unrighteous and they're unholy and they have no place and they have no part. And if Christian love does not make those, dis those distinctions, it is not Christian love. It's just a moral free-for-all like, like you find in the world. It's the same, of course, for Christian parents in the home with their children. This issue of knowledge and discernment. Your love for your children is not proven by the fact that you let them live however they want to. Your love for your children is proven by the way that you exercise knowledge and discernment on their behalf 
deciding for them what is good and beneficial and what is not. Because when they're young, they don't have the knowledge and discernment to make the right choices. But you do. Or I hope you do. And they will learn from you what those good and right choices are. As you exercise that knowledge and discernment on their behalf as mum and dad. It's exactly the same within the church. And that's what Paul is praying for. Faith in Christ and love for Christ's people is not random and haphazard. It's not without rules and boundaries. Love for, faith in Christ and love for Christ's people, it has a certain shape. It has a certain direction. It has a certain definition. It has a certain character. It can be described. And there are certain things that are part of it and there are other things which are not. And of course the primary source of this knowledge and discernment is the Bible. And the Bible is the thing that the Holy Spirit uses to teach and instruct the mind and the conscience. So the outworking of love in the church should be in line with the nature and character of God. And in line with the things that he's revealed in the Bible. And in harmony with the gospel of Christ. So that the life of every local church is a true demonstration of life in God's kingdom. Love in God's kingdom looks like this. And in many ways it's very distinctive from the examples of love that the world would point you towards. God says, no, that's not love. This is love. It looks like this in a Christian home. It looks like this in a Christian church. It looks like this in a Christian believer. You need knowledge and discernment for that. That's what Paul prays for. That's what you can pray for one another. Pray for that. Pray that our love might abound. Pray that we might be stirred up to good works for the edification and encouragement of all. That needs are met. Physical needs is part of it. But it needs to be according to our knowledge of the Bible. It needs to be according to those things which we can see are good and proper in God's eyes. And those things that are according to his will and purpose for us. Pray for that, for one another. Do it regularly. Pray for the church. Pray for those believers who you know. And secondly, in these short verses, Paul teaches us that we are to pray for one another, that we might strive for godly excellence. To strive for godly excellence. That is, moral and spiritual excellence. Paul prays that in the life of the church, its people are seeking out the very best for one another. The very best for one another spiritually. The American Baptist pastor and preacher Steve Lawson points out that it's often for Christians, it's not the choosing between good and evil that Christians struggle with the most. 
the choice between good and evil is often obvious. Where Christians struggle is learning to distinguish between what is good, what is better, and what is the best, and then choosing the best rather than being happy to settle for what is merely good. There, he says, is the Christian's struggle. The Christian's struggle is to be satisfied with that'll do when it comes to things of morality and spirituality. It's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, you know. He said, if someone wants your shirt, don't just give them your shirt, give them your coat as well. He said, if someone asks you to walk with them one mile, walk with them two. Now, in those examples, Jesus was referring to people who might coerce you or perhaps even force you against your will. If that's the case, how much further ought we to go for the Lord's people? Striving for excellence spiritually and morally within the life of the church. Paul prays that they won't just be satisfied with the minimum requirements, but they will set the, sta- the highest standards for one another and pray the highest standards for one another within the life of the church. In our love for one another, we're to pray for one another and exhort one another, not merely to that which is good for a Christian, but that which is excellent, that which is the best. That which is most excellent in God's eyes for you as a believer. That which most closely follows his word. That which most fully leans on his promises. That which most faithfully obeys his commands. That which most earnestly heeds his warnings. That which most clearly honours his name. That which most fully leads to holiness of life. A life so obviously set apart to the the love and service and worship of God. I've used it a few times. You remember that story of the man who lived on the cliff top, whose driveway ran along the edge of the cliff and he's looking for a new chauffeur to drive him his car and several people are shortlisted and they're all interviewed and he simply asks each candidate one simple question. How close can you drive my car to the edge of the cliff? And the person who got the job was the person who answered, I would drive your car as far away from the edge of the cliff as possible. In the Christian life, most of us, with biblical knowledge and discernment, can work out what is the line between obedience and disobedience. You can see the edge of the cliff. Paul prays, that you won't be satisfied just staying one millimetre on the side of obedience. But that as a Christian, you will do everything that you possibly can to stay as far away from disobedience as you possibly can do. That you won't be happy that you're just staying on the right side of the line. You want to get as far away from disobedience as you possibly can. You'll never find me flirting with the danger. Well, 
We're not content merely with what is good. We want excellence on issues of spirituality and living the Christian life as being disciples and ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prays that they might be excellent. He prays that they might be sincere. That's one English word from two Greek ones. It comes from two Greek words which were used to describe the process of examining pottery in a marketplace when they were being sold to see if there were any flaws or blemishes. If there were cracks in the pot, unscrupulous traders would sometimes try and cover up the cracks with wax. But if you held it up to the sunlight, you could see the difference on the surface of the pot and you could clearly make out the wax from the pot And having held up the pot and turned it around in the sunlight, if you could see that there was no sign of any wax at all, that pot was said to be sincere. It's genuine. No blemishes. It's complete. It's whole. It's good. It's sound. That's what Paul prays for these believers, that held up in the light of the gospel, nothing will be found in you that you'll be sincere believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. No cracks and faults and blemishes in your walk with the Lord. An authentic life of integrity. What a great thing to pray for one another. Do you pray that for your brothers and sisters? To be without offence, some translations have it blameless, but the basic meaning is that we, we won't be a cause of stumbling or discouragement to one another. There'll be no moral failing in us which creates shockwaves throughout the church. The day of Christ, of course, is the day Christ returns. In other words, this must be the continuous attitude of heart and mind for the whole of our earthly pilgrimage. This is how churches continue. This is the ongoing life of a church to pray for one another for these things. Through all of life's struggles and trials and disappointments and sorrows. That none of these things will ever throw us off the path. And Paul shows us that himself because as he writes these words he's sitting in chains in a prison cell. And in those days when there is no storm. Because God in his grace has provided you with an easy path. And it's all sunshine and peace for you right now. Well you don't let your guard down during those times and become careless. Because even then you're striving for that which is excellent in God's sight. We're to pray that we might continue and strive for spiritual and moral excellence within the life of the church for the Lord's people. And you might be thinking to yourself, well these demands are very high. These standards are very high and of course they are. And you might be thinking to yourself, Paul, you're praying for a lot here. And if I'm one of those people you're praying for, I'm really not sure I'm up to the task. But he reminds us that everything that we're praying for one another is all God's doing. Because in verse 11, he reminds us that it's by Christ and it's to God's praise. All of these things that Paul is praying for Christian believers are not outside of their grasp. If you're in Christ. These are the fruits of righteousness. And the only righteousness that we have as Christians is the very righteousness of Christ himself. We have no no righteousness of our own. 
these are not ideals which we must somehow strive to attain for, us, for ourselves. These are called fruits. Because like fruits, they spring from a seed. And it's that seed which God has planted in your life, which is the Christian gospel. It's that incorruptible seed of grace in the heart of the Christian. And it was implanted there on the day of your conversion planted there on the day that you were born again in Christ Jesus and that seed is growing and it's going to bear fruit in your life and this is the fruit that it will bear these things are the result of divine goodness and grace in your life as a Christian these are the things that will be well pleasing to Christ and acceptable to God through Christ because they come from Christ this is the outworking of Christ in the life of the Christian They're the fruits and the effects of having been justified by grace. It's the fruit of a righteousness and holiness implanted in your soul by the Spirit of God. You know a tree by its fruit. You should pray for one another that God will bring about a bumper crop of righteous fruit in the life of every believer. Jesus spoke of of, of us as being like branches and he is the vine into which we've been grafted and from him comes all life and goodness. These fruits are said to be by Jesus Christ. They spring from your union with the Lord Jesus Christ and they're owing to his grace. What Paul is praying for is that the very life of Christ might continue to grow and flourish in each Christian. Is that what you pray for? When you think about the Lord's people, You see, our prayer life has to be so much more than God bless so-and-so because he's sick at the moment. Now pray for so-and-so when he's sick. But your prayer life needs to be so much more than that. Pray for the outworking of Christ in believers. And so in praying this prayer and seeking this for one another, we must be pointing one another again and again to Christ. This is by Christ. This is a prayer by which we lay hold of Christ, that he will continue to do that saving work. He's promised that he will. Pray for it and pray on. Draw near to him in prayer and through the word. Pray that we'll be reminded daily, each one of us, that in Christ we are a new creation. Pray that all of your brothers and sisters tomorrow morning Some of them will be heading off to offices and schools and universities and they're the only Christian that's there. Pray for them. Pray for them tonight. Pray for them in the morning that they'll remember, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I have the grace of Christ within me to be who God wants me to be and that that will lead them to obedience and godliness and righteousness and holiness because these things are by Christ. I hope you can see that what Paul is doing is putting flesh on the bone of what it means to have faith in Christ and what it means to have love for Christ's people. And because all of these things are by Jesus Christ, they result in glory and praise to God. And we saw last week that this is why Paul offers so much thanks to God, because it's all of him. All of these things are entirely owing to God's free grace and his abundant mercy. And God is glorified when in his people there is much spiritual fruit. So pray for it. 
pray for the things that the Bible clearly makes known to us as being God's will for us. And this fruit, by reason of its source and origin, it must be according to the righteous law and will of God. This fruit is the fruit of righteousness and holiness. And we are to pray. Here is how Christian believers are to pray for one another. That we may abound more and more in godly love. That we might strive more and more for godly excellence of righteousness and holiness. And that all of this might be by Jesus Christ. Because it can be no other way. To the glory and praise of God. Now there, in that simple prayer, is a whole lifetime's work. And in heaven awaits your eternal rest.